0: Sorry about the noise, my neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto? Don't work on your deck, play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck, low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome
1: to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. Well, today, in the countdown to this year's Melbourne Cup, we're joined by the first female-winning trainer of the race that stops a nation. It is 20 years since Sheila Laxon's Wonder mare Ethereal, claimed an incredible Caulfield Melbourne Cup double. They were wins that offered a statement of Sheila's training prowess before Ethereal's greatness was truly enshrined in a farewell Tancred Stakes triumph. But that is Barely scratching the surface of an incredible life in horse racing that spans more than 50 years in multiple countries. Sheila, hello. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Uh, thank you, Sam. Yes, um, it's my pleasure to join you
1: today. Gee, yours is certainly a full life, complete with the big highs and the big lows that I guess come with elite sporting occupations such as yours. But surely springtime must stir the memories every time for you. Oh, it
2: does. I love this when the time of year comes around and you see or her replays and what she managed to achieve. And, you know, the longer the years between it, the more you realise how incredible that that run was. She was just an enormous competitor and, and did her very best to get to the line first in really bad, awkward circumstances sometimes.
1: Yeah, I don't know how you feel, but I find it so hard to believe it's been two decades uh, and, in fact, the 20-year anniversary since since she did the double. I mean, how vivid is the memory for you?
2: Oh, it's very vivid. You know, it seems like yesterday, when you think about what you did on the day and, and what she... Um, what she achieved and all that sort of thing and, and the moments in between and uh, my son being there and looking up at him with tears in his eyes and all those little things come back to you as if uh, as if they were yesterday.
1: Now the heavens opened that day. If memory serves me correct, I, I think you were halfway to Flemington, maybe thereabouts, when the rain really started pouring down. I mean, what level of optimism did you have at that stage of, of proceeding, Sheila? Well,
2: probably none at all because I really didn't know how she would measure up against um, all the very good horses that compete in the Melbourne Cup And 4s but I was very very happy with her progress since the Caulfield 4 Cup because she'd been quite a finicky eater and hadn't done that well you know up until the Caulfield Cup and after that she just thrived so that morning I rode her out and I was really really happy I thought well I've got her as good as I can possibly get her um, the rest is in the lap of the gods now
1: yeah is it the inevitable I hope I've done this or I hope I've done that that you, you have as a trainer going to, to big group ones like
2: this uh, well well Well, it was quite strange because I was quite set in my ways about what she needed to do. And, you know, a lot of people like Bart Cummings um, said to me, you know, you you need to race her after the corporate Cup to get her ready for the Melbourne Cup, etc. But she was such a uh, extraordinary type of horse. She just loved doing the the, man, the work we were able to do at Methven Lodge up in the hills, and just doing that conditioning, strengthening work um, was her, the recipe to her being able to be so competitive on race day. So I, I was quite happy with what I'd done with her. But of course, you don't really know until until you uh, get to the races. And, and I, I guess I the first thing I thought when she um, when Scott pushed the button and she went after give the slip with oh thank goodness you know it was a relief more than anything else that that actually I had probably got it right
1: well Scott Seabra I was going to mention who was on board of course on the day he was he was very patient Sheila perhaps you thought too patient for a time
2: well I must admit I, I wasn't sure how she was handling it and he he'd walked the track four or five times and again on the morning um, to ensure that he would be in the right place for what he thought she needed and he decided he was going to be three wide as well so going over 32 Hundred for the first time, three wide. You know, it's lots of question marks, and um, and he knew that he it was his first ride in the in the race, and he knew that he couldn't go to the um, the. Cu- you know the tower there, and he went before that, but um, he just timed it so incredibly because that Give the Slip, you know, should have won the race by a country mile, um, and and he he was very patient, waiting till uh, he decided it was time to go, and and that just shows you know walking the track just gives you all that uh, inside information that you need on actually in the race.
1: And that crucial piece of information, am I right, in saying that Scott knew Sheila that the best part of the track, which obviously pouring rain as I mentioned, was in fact around that portion of it. Yes.
2: Yeah, so he was quite adamant that that was where he was going to be in the whole run um, because she was an unknown quantity on uh, on rain-affected tracks. And, and of course, she'd won that amazing oak in 35 seconds and she, she came from the back of the field. So crikey, how, how fast did she run that, that race, the last 600 in, on a firm track? So we presumed that she probably needed really good footing to show her bed.
1: Yeah, and give the slip you mentioned had done exactly that. Well, I mean, it was miles clear at the 200? The but whenever you mention the name Ethereal, I think the first thing for most people that comes to mind is just that breathtaking burst of finishing speed and that that was that's what she's remembered for best I would
2: have thought yes I mean. I think her best win was was in the Tancred, you know, and, and she'd been um, shoved back into a spot by Universal Prince and he'd gone past her. And then she's dropped to last and came with the most incredible dash um, to perform at the Post. It was just awesome. And apparently his rider said when he looked down and saw it was her, he could not believe she could have come from where he'd put her. Um, but she was so tenacious. She was just an absolute darling to, to be involved with.
1: Yeah, so that Tancred stakes, which was obviously back then, the, the BMW at Rose Hill, do you have that at the top? Of all the others, was this her best victory?
2: I look, obviously, the Melbourne Cup is, is your best victory yeah. to experience, but for her, probably the best her best efforts were, were the Tancred and probably the Oak because um, she came from an impossible position in in the, that race, too. Um, and uh, obviously, she's very lucky to hang on for the, the Corporate Cup as well. So, look, three of her wins have been by nostril, um, but it just showed just how determined she was to, to get to the post first, thank goodness. And
1: Indeed. And the Tankard would go down as the grand finale, wouldn't it? I mean, when when did you learn that that would be Ethereal's last race?
2: Uh, fairly shortly after that race, which was a bit of a shame because um, Peter had said, oh, if she wins the BMW or the tankard, um, we'll go for the Arch Trion. And so I was thinking that would still be on the agenda, but um, I believe that, you know, they, they just, because she'd done so incredibly well, they didn't want to risk her any further. And I can quite understand that. You know, I was, um, you know, you would never want to lose a horse like that by, by trying to climb the tree too high. Um, but that that year, Marion who ran seventh for her in the Melbourne Cup, won the Arch Trial. So what could have been?
1: And Peter obviously changed his mind, at you, as you say. But as a trainer, Sheila, how many times did you try to change his mind and get Ethereal to France, or did you did you know your place in it all?
2: Oh, look, look. I suppose I wouldn't want to be responsible for, for sort of saying to go over there, and then something dreadful happened to her. Um, so you know she'd done it so extraordinarily well leave it at that leave her on a one on winning note and um, go, go to the group map with a cl- sort of cloud of glory over you She she was just um she was just one out of the box, and I was so lucky to have been able to get her to train. you know, I just count my blessings every day.
1: Yeah, I know certainly all that she delivered was above and beyond. We, we acknowledge that, I suppose. Oh, regret's the wrong word. I wondered if it remained the source of some regret, probably not regret, but maybe just not knowing what might have been the what- ifs, do they stay with you at all in the back of your mind as the years have gone on when it comes to the art? Uh?
2: Oh look, I would have loved to have gone there because I've come from England anyway and and um, my training actually is very English anyway. You know, up in the hills and doing all the conditioning work. So I know that, you know, if I could have got her to uh, the Arch Triumph in the same condition as she was in the Melbourne Cup. You would think she would have been a really good chance and that would have been great for Australasia to have um, put their mark on the board in that race because, you know, over that side of the world is is the best staying race to win.
1: You're listening to This Is Your Journey and it's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, up next, how a childhood on the farm sparked Sheila Laxon's love of horses.
0: Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is
1: Your Journey and it's made possible by and Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting with Melbourne Cup winning trainer, Sheila Laxon. Sheila, you are born in Pontypreet, Wales. Actually, how's my pronunciation there, by the way, with Pontypreet? Have I got that right?
2: Pontypreet,
1: Pontypreet. I was, <laughs> yes, was close, never going to nail it to that end, was I? What was? <laughs> what was, uh, What are the memories of those early years growing up on the, the small farm?
2: Well, actually, I can't remember any of that because uh, my first memory Actually, when I was young, was, was um, when we moved to a place called Ten Farm. In Kent, Um, and I suppose I was about four years old then. But we, we mum um, had ponies to spell during the winter from the, you know, the pony rides on the beaches they had over there, and so we learnt to ride on these little scallywags. It was a great way to to learn to get inside a horse's brain and try and work out how to get it to do what you wanted to do and not what it, you know, been doing on the beach.
1: Fantastic. So mum had her hands full running all of that. Well, your dad was away at sea a lot, correct? Was he a ship's pilot?
2: Yes, he was. He was. He was a a captain and um, oh, no, sorry a pilot um, and I think when we first went there you know he'd go about two years deep sea and everything so mum really had to bring us up on her own which uh, I can imagine was quite tough in those days yeah
1: indeed and and you I mean do you have to grow up fast on a farm particularly when um, dad's a- away a lot and your mum's um, so busy
2: uh, I guess it's um, it's what you grow up with that's what you expect happens and you know we all to uh, milk the cows and feed the chooks and collect the eggs and do all that sort of thing and um, we had a great upbringing, you know, I love being out in the country and being away from anybody else, spent all the hours we possibly could riding our ponies.
1: Oh, yeah, so the, the ponies, the, even the pony clubs, the show jumping, it got a hold of you early, didn't it, Sheila? Yes,
2: yeah, it's all I ever wanted to do, is a ride horse. I wanted—I actually wanted to be an international show jump rider when I was a teenager, um, and really went to all sorts of lengths to, to see if I could get there, but uh, you just need so much money to do that, and that wasn't really in my vogue to be able to um, afford it. But I I, I did jump for a dealer show jump for a dealer and uh, and was pretty successful you know I could get horses going that um, other people couldn't and I ended up representing England in, in the French competition and being the highest placed English rider so all of that was really really fantastic and I just I just wanted to aim as hard as I possibly could whatever I did hey, geez.
1: yeah I mean I wanted to tap into what sort of ambition burned inside a, a young Sheila Laxon at this point Sheila so obviously took up work as well as all this with a local trainer from 12 so you're juggling work before for school and the show jumping as well you, you must have had a deep level of ambition you, you knew where you wanted to get
2: oh, I not so much knew where I wanted to get but it just I just loved riding horses you know I, I didn't want to do anything else but ride horses and um, everything that everyone that was a challenge to me I, I you know I, when I first went to stable yard the racing yard I wanted to be able to be good enough to ride every horse in the yard and all had had all that sort of ambition that you know I can do it I can do it and I guess that's been with me all my life you know um, however high I had to climb I've had to give it a go
1: and then the push to get a racing license or an amateur license a jockey's license in England that was that was a long standing pursuit and I think it even did it take you to Cyprus at one point
2: well it did I I was working for a trainer called Derek Kent who was a really good um, jump trainer and, and lap trainer and it, he actually trained a horse called Grand Canyon that won the colonial cup three times in America so he was, um, he was very astute and very knowledgeable and he actually said to me he would give me an amateur life um, but they just didn't have the horses racing in amateur races and um, in the end I went to Cyprus and because they promised to get me a licence to ride in races there and that didn't happen either. And so when I got back it was so cold in England I thought oh well I'm going back to New Zealand and follow the sun around I think. So I went back there and um, met up with Laurie Laxon and said I'd come and work for him as his secretary providing he got me an amateur licence and I could ride in race so that was the deal we struck.
1: <laughs> what a deal. So this is steeplechases hurdle races on the flat against professional jockeys and you, you had some early Success too, didn't you?
2: Yes, I think in my I won my first race in a in a hurdle race and uh, nearly fell off the horse three times because it just clambered through every fence that was. Um, but in my first nine rides, I had four wins and a second and a third, and just oh, just loved it. This is this was my dream. This is what I wanted to do is ride riding races. I just
1: loved it. And Laurie, you struck up that partnership. You got married, of of course, in New Zealand. He sadly passed away earlier this year.
2: Yes, he did. Um, it was you know, but it, look, he was happy where he was. He had a house. From the beach, and you know he did his own thing right till the end. So um, he was in a happy, happy place. But I think he just missed being a trainer. You know, I think when you've done it all your life and and you um, have to eventually give it away, I, I think it, it really like he was treated like king in Singapore. Nobody had done what he had done, and um, everywhere he went, they worshipped the grounds he walked on. So um, I, I think he really missed that when he when he retired. Um, and it's a big step to take. You know, when do you, when do you retire? You know, but it, but look, he had. The the most ordinary life, and he was very, very successful. So um, he can be proud of, of what he achieved. You know,
1: when he was going, and v- yeah, and very well known in this part of the world. Obviously, 1988 with uh, Empire Rose at the Melbourne Cup, and and you rode many of his horses in track work, and Empire Rose was was one of those. You were always going to be a trainer, I think it's fair to say. But did these sort of I don't know big chapters in in your life around Empire Rose and such, Sheila, really stoke the fire for what was to come for you in the training sense?
2: I suppose you learn. As you go without realising you're doing it, you know, even working for Derek Kent, and even when I was, you know, 12 years old and riding these racehorses that were broken down um, on the recovery trail, you learn so much without realising you're doing it. And you know, I suppose um, when I did get handed my trainer's license, it was uh, in, in circumstances I went real stupid. Um, it was it was great to do it. And then, you know, I was given uh, six horses that were Laurie believed, you know, they won't win races, and then I won with every single one of the horses I was training. Was training Training bar one so again it was another challenge that I wanted to do my very best at so I sort of learnt to train differently for horses keep them happy because I believe happy horses do try their best in the races and um, you know I I developed my own scheme about how to get the very best out of them.
1: Yeah we'll come back to your philosophies on training a little bit later but after Wales, Sheila, England, New Zealand came Australia I I think you might have said many times that you never thought you'd leave New Zealand.
2: No I I wouldn't have done. I, I honestly wouldn't but I had ended up having a terrible smash the following year after the Melbourne Cup and uh, been confined to a wheelchair for about six months so I had to give my training away in, in New Zealand and uh, luckily John Simons wheeled me around in the wheelchair after that Though so, there you go I'm, I'm back in Australia mate
1: Well you, I was just going to say you've done well to resist the bulk of the Aussie accent I thought it might have been a bit stronger by now but you, you've held
2: firm Ah <laughs> oh, yes I suppose um, you know with an English background and, and you always pick up a little bit everywhere you go so i hate to think what my accent sounds
1: like now we are two days out from the melbourne cup here on this is your journey brought to you by tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives you can visit them online as well at tobinbrothers.com.au we'll be back with sheila laxon
0: right after you're listening to this is your journey with sam edmund for tobin brothers funerals visit tobinbrothers.com.au tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope
1: you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey, where with history-making trainer Sheila Laxon as we count down to the Melbourne Cup. Now, Sheila, I read recently where you were asked, after all of your years working with horses, what they had taught you, and you said to bear pain. What do you what do you mean by that?
2: Well, you will get hurt for sure. If you work with horses or have anything to do with horses, they will hurt you because because of the circumstances, you know, we put them through our toes But uh, yes, you certainly have to grin and bear it when, when an accident comes your way because if you ride horses, you will certainly fall off, and um, you know, most of the time you get away with it. Some of the time, it's it's got not very nice results. Well, you've had
1: fortune, which we touched on, obviously off the top with ethereal. But of course, the flip side, as you touched on, your profession is is bad luck, and and it must be said you've had your fair share of the latter, and painfully too, when it comes to. Being in the saddle, how many falls do you think you might have uh, had over the journey?
2: Oh, uh, I wouldn't know, but I I know I ended up in hospital every year since I was nineteen with with, with is, some sort of injury or other from horses. Is
1: that right? Wow! Uh,
2: every year until until about two years ago, actually, and uh, I had my last fall and my last time on a horse, and I thought that's it. I'm this is crazy, you know. I've I've got away with blue murder. I don't want to be ending up in a wheelchair now when I don't have anything to prove. So um, I haven't ridden since. Uh, no, it's uh, and you've got to be a bit gung ho to ride horses. You know, you always think you're invincible, and and that's where you have your accents, I guess. You know, you just. Um, you just take that bridge too far. Just on the
1: here and now with that, Sheila, obviously you've spent so much of your life in the saddle. Has it, has it been hard to go Well, what sounds like cold turkey?
2: Oh, I hate it. Oh, I just hate it. Yeah. But, you know, I've just had such a good run. I've been so lucky. You know, the accidents I've had, how I haven't ended up paraplegic. Like, some, you know, a lot of riders do end up like that and that would be just the most horrible thing to have to live through and you can't do anything else about it. So I wasn't going to tempt providence anymore. And um, you know, I've I've loved it. I've loved riding them. I've loved being involved with them. Um, but now I'm stepping aside, and I'll watch from the ground and put what what I can into you know getting them to the races in the best possible way they can. And and you know, we can do that with the, the riders and the um, personnel we've got around us. So that's that's really that's really good to be able to sit down and talk to them about and oh, listen. This is what I want to do. Da 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 da. Um, and they take it on board, and they, they work really well together.
1: Yeah, because not only was it a love, obviously, for the horse and a love for riding that you say goes right back to your earliest memories back in uh, in Wales and, and England, but also the fact that it was, a, for those unfamiliar, it was a big part of your training philosophy, wasn't it, to be to be on the saddle for, for, for a large portion of your time.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, um, you've got to get the horse to understand what you want of it, because it's got no idea why it's out in a uh, on a race course with a bunch of other horses, you know, and, and it's really good to be able to import the, impart the um, knowledge to them. This is what I want you to do. I want you to settle. I want. I don't want you to spend any energy. I just want you to uh, chill along. And now I want you to go and really put everything you've got into it, because I want you to win at that post and then I'm going to make the biggest fuss of you and you you know and, and a good intelligent horse, they do know when they've won and they do sort of rise up to the occasion and that was a, the case with Ethereal you know she knew exactly why she was there um, but you need the riders to educate them in that way otherwise they, they no, nobody's got any idea why they're out there Um, The clever ones pick it up and the the dumb ones never get it.
1: So the danger, regardless of whether they're dumb or smart, is ever present. So New Zealand 91 and a bad crash. You were in a coma for eight days. You needed to learn to walk, to talk, to write, obviously to ride again. What happened? I mean, in so much as how much can you remember anyway?
2: Oh, well, I'd ridden this horse in a race once before and um, I didn't used to ride him track work, but I, I galloped against him in the final gallop before we went down to Gisborne. And I thought, God, he looks sore. But he'd always been sore, and we'd had the vets look at him and things like that. And um, as I say, I had ridden him before, but when I went down to the start, I thought, oh, he's so much sore than he was last time. I'm going to get the vets to look at him. And then I get round, and I'm thinking, you know, this horse can win. And there you go, your your recklessness takes over. This horse should win this race, da-da-da-da. So uh, so I never said anything which was silly. And that is so stupid, you know, for, for one race. If you're not sure that your horse is on, you need not to ride it because they're they're competing at the highest grade and any little um, problems will be, you know, realised on the way around. But anyway, so I've jumped out and that's all I remember. Um, but I've seen the film a few times. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things... I guess you you get uh, experience like that, and then you learn from it. But unfortunately, that was the end of my um, racing race riding career, um, and it was it was tough. I mean, I remember waking up in hospital eight days later, and and not knowing where I was, and then not being able to speak. And so I asked the I sort of hand signed that I wanted to write notes on a piece of paper, and I couldn't write either. And then I found out I was in a uh, uh, I'm going and there was men and women there, and that night they played one through of the cuckoo's Nest. And I was completely aware of everything going on, but I just couldn't—I couldn't communicate. And it just opens up another big window about how many people are in that same position. You know, they can't communicate, so how can they let other people know? You know, where they're at or how they're thinking. Or and I, I tell you what, very quickly I learned to read people. Yeah, was, were, um, were, you,
1: were you panicking at this point, Sheila? I mean, this is a horribly isolating time or period in your life.
2: Oh yes, it was, and and obviously. You know, it was a full-on um, position in the, t- in the training setup at, at home. And because I wasn't much good at doing anything at all, you know, you, you get left in the backwater because you, you're not producing anything like you used to. Um, so it's a very lonely place to be, especially when I had no memory retention at all. Um, I picked the phone up and, and somebody talked to me. I put it down and I couldn't remember who it was. So that quickly made me learn to write again. Um, wow. And it, it was just it was just the most awful experience. Um, but probably a learning curve on the way through. Through, you know you appreciate what other people go through and it's a bit like um, when people when I was in the wheelchair people always talk to her was pushing the wheelchair not to to you and you know if, whenever I uh, somebody like that, I actually get down to their level and if you know princess I used to always do that all the time get down to their level um, so I don't know whether she was taught to do that or whether it was just an um, intuition of hers but it you know you just really take on board other people's situations where normally you don't you just live your own life and you do what you do and um, don't think about other people that might be in that same room that have got those limitations, but of course they learn to live with them as well. So it was it was good, and, and of course it's winning the Melbourne Cup, and the head injury guys got on board, and it was a, a great promotion to say, hey, listen, I was in that boat ten years ago, exactly ten years ago, and look what's happened to me. Never give up, you know. It's, it's just uh, that in itself is, is an amazing story that um, can pick yourself up, and you can make your body learn to read and write and speak again, and even write again, but that was sneaky. I, I, I did that with. I'd
1: be looking um, <laughs> That's just incredible isn't it and then the move to Australia of course and um, I guess Macedon Lodge so this is 2002 you're on a claim bolts on a training ride and you're sent flying into a steel railing
2: yes a steel gate oh. and it was you know if I stayed with her she actually jumped the gate I should stuck on board <laughs> with all my right. jumping experience but but you know she was trying to stop and and naturally as a rider you just let yourself go limp so you don't damage yourself when you hit the deck um, but it if I had to actually stay with her I probably would have been all right but anyway I didn't and um I hit the gate with such force um and and just later thinking ow something's really badly wrong and apparently when John got down there my leg was out at right angles because it popped out of the hip and then lodged in the lower the lower bone hip socket and was stuck out at right angles and I broke it about six ribs and I couldn't breathe I punched my lung and um but I hadn't hit my head so I was completely aware of what was going on and um, um I, I hoped I'd be all right
1: yeah that was kidney damage as well, liver damage, cracked vertebrae and as you mentioned the right femur popping out of your hip joint which would be a horrific sight. So that was 18 months walking with a crutch. Recovery I suppose wasn't guaranteed, wasn't and it meant you had to train from the ground which as we've touched on wasn't your go at all and mentally that must have been very hard again because you were so hands on.
2: Well that's right and you know I had horses there that I knew could be um, pretty smart race horses you know that I'd taken over to Australia and you knew that you weren't getting what I you'd get out of them you know, the riders are really good But, you know, you sort of talk to your animals You sort of let them know that I really want you to try really hard when I actually quicken And as soon as you sprint, I used to say, that'll do You know, that's all I want I want you to be able to sprint off the mark At any point I ask you to um, And things like they need to do in a race You know, just bring the racetrack to, to their education So that in a tight situation when it opens up in front They just sprint off the mark through the gap um, And just try their very best And you could impart that to them when you're riding them But it's really difficult to get the sort of rider that would act Knowledge, that's what you've got to teach them. Um, You know, most riders just go out and work the horses and they do their best work at the end and things like that. But it's just another level you can go to um, to to make them understand that they're, they're there to actually win, you know, get to the post first. And I do miss that. Uh, you know, I'd love to get on some of the young horses we've got because they look like they've got so much, you know, ability. Um, but we'll get there. We'll get there. We you just learn other ways, other ways and means.
1: Yeah. Uh, what were you like walking around with a crutch? Were we getting crabby there, Sheila? Uh, oh.
2: uh, being una- <laughs> unable to impart your your wisdom so directly. Oh well, if they didn't listen, I'd whack them around the ears with a crutch. <laughs> no, <laughs> you uh, had a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, look, I- I've been very fortunate in that everybody that's uh, been with me has helped me and. You know they've been so kind and so willing to you know do the hard yards to to get what I want so I appreciate every bit of help I get on the way you know even little Kelly who rides work for us for, for, for me in particular you know she's really great the way she comes out in the in the grass paddock and, and gets them going on circles and leading on the right leg so I can get her to understand they've got to be on the right leg turning for home you know and all that sort of thing and then they balance on the other leg and they could sprint again and all the little nuances that you know can get Get your very best out of your horse. So I'm, I'm lucky with the team that I've got around me and we keep aiming for the stars.
1: Fantastic to hear. And if all that wasn't enough, now that's probably two of your nine lives, Sheila. There was a third life used up, was there not? Tell us about this plane experience that I haven't been able to find a lot on. It was described as a harrowing plane experience, wasn't it? This is a, a flight from New Zealand to Australia?
2: Yes, on an American plane. And I'd never actually been on a horse plane before and we had a couple of horses coming over and one was Vanessa Bell and the other one was Christiana Bell, her sister and um Laurie was going with the horse that I was flying on it. Passenger plane, and anyway, um, he gets on the plane. He says, "Hey, you can come on this one." I said, and I really didn't want to because there was bits hanging down off the plane and what have you. Uh, I said, "Oh no, I'll go on the passenger." No, 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 no. You come with me. So uh, we jumped on this plane, and uh, when he's about to take off, I think we had three horses or 120 horses. I mean, there's a lot of horses they loaded up, and wow. then the lorry wanders up as he always used to, and to the pilot to see what the delay was in taking off. And the guys they're working out the weight of the horses at 400 kilos each, and actually most horses are 500. And he said oh in too much weight i can't take off and so it- said We have to get the handlers to take these horses off. The handlers had gone home, and uh, then he decided to have his where he'll unload the fuel. They so unloaded the fuel, and off we went. They so we were flying into Brisbane, and it's boring with rain. And so he gets down to nearly going to land, and he thinks, No, nah, I can't land here. He didn't realize the airway had groove to take all the rain, and so he takes back up in the air. But apparently, you use a lot of fuel going back in up in the air like that. So he decides to go to Sydney. When he gets halfway to Sydney, he then remembers he send all the fuel in the Auckland's, and he hasn't got enough fuel to get to Sydney. Oh. So the guy he said, "Oh, can you all come back down to the um, back of the plane?" And there was only eight or nine of us there, I suppose. And he said, "Look, um, I regret to advise you that uh, we we've got a fuel problem. We um, we're trying to get into Sydney, but uh, we're going to fly as sea as possible so that if we do run out of uh, fuel will uh, land in the sea and this is what you've got to do. The five bells ring, da-da-da-da, and the six bells ring, you da-da-da-da, this is where the life the lifeboats are and what have you. So I've bent down because I used to work on the hovercraft <laughs> between Dover and France and I've got the life jacket out and put it on. Somebody laughed anyway, next minute they've all got them on. And so we had 20 minutes of waiting to die. It was just, just appalling. I turned around to Laurie and I said hey Laurie, you can you, better, you can tell me all, the, all your misdemeanours now, you know. <laughs> I said, "Oh no, I, I haven't got time for that."
1: Hey, hang on, I, I thought they only did that in the movies. You actually did that in, in, in the midst of a, a, a scene of great panic. You found some time for humour. Yeah.
2: Well, I thought, well, that time I could do that. I know all of his misdemeanors, but uh, he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to part that that to me just before we died. <laughs> But um, anyway, it was twenty minutes of just thinking, and, and you know what? You think about things like I hadn't, we hadn't got insurance that we we had no wills done, so we couldn't let um, people know what we wanted the children to do, and all those silly things because you think you're going to live all the time, don't you? And it was a uh, um, it was pretty pretty scary time. Anyway, we've landed, and I'll tell you what, that was the best thing that could have happened. But what did happen is that they phoned to get right away straight into the Sydney airport um, because they didn't have they didn't have much fuel. They had left and when Sydney heard that they said you're not coming in here, you've got to go to Newcastle and apparently the American pilot said no I don't know the specifications of Newcastle, we're coming into Sydney and apparently they said if you keep coming we're going to send some fighter planes up and blow you out of the sky. Now I, I don't know how true that is but anyway he, he did go to Newcastle and we landed and do you know how much fuel we had left? One forty-four <laughs> gallon tank full, one minute's flying time left <laughs> Wow, did you did
1: you ever get on a horse plane again after that? Uh, yeah
2: I <laughs> did <laughs> but I made sure it wasn't from America and not dilapidated
1: oh, wow no, hey, that's amazing mm. that is amazing we're talking to the mm. wonderful Sheila Laxon on This Is Your Journey and it's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives we'll be back
0: right after this you're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
1: It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. They're a family-owned business since 1934. Sheila Laxon is our guest today. So, Sheila, ethereal, going back to the Wondermare, only went beyond 2,000 metres four times in her life. She won them all at Group 1 level, 21 starts eight wins and more than 4.7 million dollars in earnings can one get another ethereal in their lives
2: one's been looking for one ever since <laughs> oh, look <laughs> I'm always hunting 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 and and look this you know you always look at a horse as if to say can it uh, can it reach the height she did of course they can you know you get winks you get um, um, Insensitized, look what what that's done. Um, you can get them to come out of the bag like that, and you've just got to have your, you know, radar up to see, you know, this horse could do this, you know, let, let's make it happen, let's give it every opportunity to show how good it is. Of course, most of them fall by the wayside, but, um, you know, I'll keep hunting because I want another one. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. once you've had it, I can imagine. So, as you mentioned, the word hunt, and the, the hunt goes on up in the Sunshine Coast now to Spree Racing, obviously. So, you and your partner, John Simons, moved up there. What was it, 2016? So, you're well-travelled, yes, yes. which you've documented. How's the Queensland lifestyle been?
2: uh it's fabulous. It is fabulous. You know, the weather's balmy, and um, we've got a swimming pool. I can swim every day. There's beautiful beaches where we are, and... You know, the lifestyle is amazing and people are so much more laid back up here, which you can imagine why. Um, so it was, a great, it was a great place to come to and it, it's a great facility to train horses at the Sunshine Coast. You know, when they set it up, they set it up in exactly the right way for the public to view the best of the race course and to train there is, is fantastic as well.
1: And we've danced around your training philosophy, Sheila, throughout our chat today, and, and obviously it's been said that you've never been afraid to do things that, are, I guess, seem to be out of the ordinary. I mean, things around feeding and, and horses in paddocks instead of boxes and asking your horses only to give their maximum effort on race day, and it goes on and on. Have those philosophies remained true with you consistently all the way through, or have you adapted over time?
2: Oh well, obviously we have to adapt here. Like the place we had in New Zealand was absolutely spot on for um, doing that, the work I would like to do with them, and that was combining the English type of conditioning training to um, training in you know in circles because they don't really race in circles um, in in England. So I, I have adapted to what's best for the horse to um, get get fit enough to win races, and I must admit, you know, we used to ride out for an hour and a half in England, and when I first went to New Zealand, we were on their backs for eight minutes or something, uh, riding around the track there, and I just was absolutely gobsmacked smacked that you can get horses fit to, to race just sitting on their backs for eight minutes, and you know, in the track with Good Morning. So all of that, you mesh it all together, and you... Um, then you can differentiate what you do with different horses because some horses need a lot of work. Other horses, like Ethereal, didn't need a lot of work. Um, Laurie raced Empire Rose in the McKinnon on, um, on the Saturday before. She won the Melbourne Cup on the Tuesday, but she was a big, tough horse that needed that sort of work, even though she was a mare, whereas, whereas Ethereal was quite fragile and uh dainty and you wouldn't be able to punish her to get the best out of her. So you really got to be a bit of a, a mind reader to understand your horses and what they'd be best to do, um, you know, and get the work into them. Like we swim hours quite a lot in the afternoon, so they, they work in the mornings and then they um, they walk for an hour probably by the time they walk before and after they've worked and then they go down to the swim pool and they, they, they have a big swim here as well. So all of that aids them to be so conditioned that they find it easy in the race. And that I think it's pretty important that they they do the, the most of the race pretty easily. And then they've only got that little bit they've really got to put in.
1: And I would assume your philosophy is relatively closely aligned with John. But I mean, they do say debate is healthy. How often do you two disagree?
2: Oh, quite often, <laughs> um, <laughs> and he normally always wins. Um, but but what we do actually, I I have my little group of horses, and he has his little group of horses. So um, I do what right. I do with mine. But it's great that you've got somebody to talk to about. And he's he's a really astute trainer and a great horse person. You know, the the horses he's picked out at the sales that have been very very good horses. Um, I'm just astounded by his ability to be able to pick them like that because I certainly can't pick a horse as a young horse. I can certainly pick them when I start riding them, but um, he's got an incredible ability to to pick out these awesome horses. We had a horse called Daintree Duke, and the first time I ever galloped him, I came back and said, actually, it was the first time I ever rode him, I said, this is the best horse I've ever sat on. You know, it was just had so much ability. Um, and he could have gone anywhere in the world and, and won anything he wanted him to. He was just an amazing horse. And unfortunately, he slipped over in the paddock and got a hematoma on his brain, and we lost it But he won six of the seven starts, and, and his one at uh, Seymour was, a, you know, if you ever get a chance to watch it, you just watch it. It's, uh, to come from where he came from and, and treat the, you know, good horses he was racing against with so much disdain, just spoke volumes of his you know innate ability it was amazing but John's got you know he's able to do that and this year we've got a lot of those uh, youngsters in the camp so um, all the time you've got those horses in training you're you're very excited about what they might be able to produce
1: yeah I would have thought and so what's the divvy up is it as simple as John likes to do the Colts differently than what you like to do the Phillies
2: I Yes and no. You know he's um, like he he's a lot tougher on what work he does with them because well obviously he had Bella Spree you know and he he only those first five races were in black type races. That's how good a judge he was about the, the ability of that horse and he he won all five of them. And to me that's extraordinary to be able to do that. Um, but he's got he knows. What he sees and what he you know what they need to do um I'll always go the softer softer side because I suppose i I'd do that with Phillies and mares um but it's great to be able to talk talk shop and and uh, work out what's best to do with them, and we've only got a certain amount of work we can do with them here, so we need to make sure that it's um it's the best for the horses to produce on the day like we had uh, seven trials a day and, and three winners that were really satisfying to see because they won so so well. So um, suddenly you enthusiasm gets and get into overdrive again and you think, wow, where can this one take us?" But um, we've got some lovely horses in this today So looking forward to the next couple of seasons, but I think it uh, should
1: be good. Great to hear Great to hear. So, Sheila, let's perhaps end close to where we started, and that was, I guess, the the wrestle when we were talking about, Laurie, of, of, of knowing when to retire and when, when to stop doing something that is in your blood and you, you love so much. So, what is the joy in it for you now, and, and what keeps you doing it? Is it the hunt that you say, the prospect of finding another ethereal, that great group one, or... Is it something more off Broadway that, uh, regardless of all that, keeps you motivated and jumping out of bed to keep doing what you do?
2: I think I think it's a hunt. It's a hunt of finding a horse with the ability and then nurturing it so it's uh, you know you can win those big races because it's you know it's so exciting to achieve that. And you know when I when I decide I don't want to do that anymore, you know I suppose that's the time you retire, but. I want to do that. You know, we've got such lovely horses in the stable, and I'm so excited about it. what um, what we can find in the next uh, few weeks, let alone the next few years. With the you know more babies, I hope we we buy in the <clears throat> Magic Million sales. Um, you know, the, the world's your oyster, and and you know we've got a great support team behind us, and um, we're we're able to just uh, pick over the apples and pick the best ones.
1: Sheila Laxon, it has been terrific to catch up today. You are certainly one gutsy horsewoman. I mean, yes, there's been ambition, determination and resilience, but also a heck of a lot of skill and nous and craft, and it saw you create history at the very top of your sport, and yours is a legacy that is forever enshrined. Well done on all you achieved, and thanks so much for joining us.
2: Uh, thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much.
1: And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon.